Bhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa Bhutang Tamang Sankang Namasami In investigating Anicca, impermanence, it's important to to investigate it in in its details of just uh, co- reflecting on what is the beginning, and just uh, to 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 note in this how things that that arising side of of thought or feeling how things. Um, or something comes up, it begins, and then it reaches its peak and it ends. Or you can uh, contemplate the nature of endings, death, endings, cessation. Birth and, and the beginning, isn't it? Um, birth, uh, physical birth, but then, then mental states begin, and uh, we like we can't remember our birth, physical birth, and usually we we aren't aware of how things ar- arise until they've arisen in the mind. So that's why when we contemplate, when we reflect on what what has arisen in our consciousness. If there's suffering, if we're suffering in some way, it's, we're, then we're attached to, to something. So that which has arisen, we, we, we contemplate the mood, the feeling, the atmosphere, whatever way we're feeling or experiencing life is in the conscious moment. Then we we have the opportunity to see it, see it cease, to be with its passing. And this is like our lifetime, isn't it? We, we are now, say, we're alive, breathing, physically uh, breathing, conscious beings, uh, but we're all going to die in the future. So we're, we're, on, the, we're on the arising, and they and we are now on many of us are on the uh, downhill slide <laughs> but we can say it's like this we can we we see it as uh, as we're, we're contemplating the just the nature of say of, of aging w- watching the aging process take place or the the uh, one sees that it's just the body that gets old the the mind doesn't get old. And sometimes you, young people don't realize that old people, bodies are old, but sometimes their minds are still young. <laughs> sometimes their minds are too young, they're still... <laughs> still 14-year-old, or whatever. My grandmother died at 75, but I think she, emotionally she was about 16 years old. <laughs> Still boy crazy at 75.
Now notice when, when that which has arisen, we, we turn, we're like this, this experience of consciousness. We're, we're in a conscious form now. So we, can, we, we don't need to find a definition for consciousness in the dictionary because we're, we're actually experiencing consciousness. It's like this. And uh, this is like a reflection on consciousness, on vijnana. It's, it's this way. It's not. You don't have to find out the a definition for it or what what so and so says consciousness is, because it's already you're already conscious, and it's this way. Like trying to to uh, find out what the taste of honey is by by reading a definition of it, and uh, find out what other people say about it when. All you have to do is taste it for yourself, and you know. So consciousness is uh, is this subject-object experience. It means a separate form, isn't it? We're born in a b- human body. That means now we're conscious. There's a in in the universe where we're a form that lives in this in this universe that's conscious. Within this, within the, uh, in this particular, uh, as a subjective experience, we're experiencing the universe uh, in a subjective way. Because how it impinges on this form, how it, how it uh, hits us, how it uh, affects us. So consciousness is the, is the natural experience of the subject to object. And we're the subject of our whole lifetime, aren't we? Each one of us is the subject. And, and trying to see the difference between being a, a personality and, uh, being a, and being a subject. I mean, our experience is subjective because that's just the way it is. We experience life from where we are. You know, what, what hits us, what contacts us, that we, we experience. That affects us, and so consciousness is. Say, if I if I hold this clock up into you know, say, eye consciousness, consciousness through the eye. It one is conscious of it. There's consciousness of it as, as an object of sight, and then, uh, but then we we can also see that we perceive it as a clock. So, so consciousness is, it doesn't necessarily mean there's uh, perception operating. It means that, that what comes into the field of, of, the, of the sense organs impinges on them, that we, can, we, we are conscious of. Then we have this ability to, to perceive things, to, to name things, to, to uh, think and, and remember and put, and have logic and reason, rational thinking, and so forth. So these are tools of the mind, but these are these are instilled in the mind through education, through culture. But when we're born, we aren't born with our with perceptions already instilled in us. We're born as a conscious being and uh, a feeling. We have feeling and consciousness in the body. So this is this is to to point out the way it is, so we can begin to see what is culturally acquired. We, we each acquire the, the perceptions, the prejudices, the values of, of our particular families and class, 
ethnic background, religious background, that's, that's instilled in us after we're born. We aren't born with that. So what I'm doing is laying the foundation of just the way things are that is non-personal, non-cultural, non, just, uh, just in terms of Dhamma. This is consciousness, is, is, is Dhamma, and feeling, and, and the, the body. It's just the way it is. Then we're, we're conditioned through the values, the biases, the prejudices, the attitudes of our mother, father, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, grandparents, the class that we're born into, the nationality, where the identities with, with femininity, masculinity, all these uh, these things are are instilled in the mind. So when we get that perspective clear, then we can see that that uh, that we uh, we we can we, we're re-educating ourselves in in to see things in in the way that's in in line with truth, in alignment with truth, rather than just the random conditioning of, or the haphazard conditioning of culture and, and uh, attitudes and prejudices and biases that you get stuck with because you happen to be born in that particular family, in that particular situation. The personality, the sense of oneself as being the body, as being a uh, male or female as being a certain type as being good or bad or whatever these are these are attitudes that are instilled into the mind after birth so they're, they're not they're, they're based on, on you acquire them just through the the experience of life what you get what 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 uh, your parents give you what the the fears and the problems of the of the age that you're born in or the group that you live with. So these then in terms of, of reflective meditation we're contemplating them as anicca, as what arises ceases and is non-self. So it's a way of looking at even the most personal kind of feelings or attitudes or the most uh, kind of emotional uh, fraught situations that you have and a way of looking at them as in terms of Dhamma, as they really are, rather than as what you feel they are, what you think they are, what you believe they are. So this way you, you, can, you can look at things that you oftentimes have never dared to look at when you, when you know how to look at them, because you know, oftentimes we're afraid to look at things, we're afraid to know too much, or afraid to, to look too deeply, or to admit certain things, because we we, we, we know, we interpret it always in, in a very personal way, which can be very, you know, very, uh, cause us a lot of suffering. If we, if we happen to t interpret our life's experiences and, and our karmic uh, collections on the personal level, you can come up with some pretty dismal conclusions about yourself. <laughs> 
and also we uh, some many of us tend to exaggerate the, the the bad side of life how many of you spend more time uh, uh, thinking about all your faults and failures than about your virtues and your, your goodness. How many of you spend any time thinking about your own goodness? Do you ever think about that? Or here in Britain, I think British people would think that would be unseemly. <laughs> because you're, it's like boasting or something, thinking, admitting that you're good would be like like uh, bragging about yourself, but in terms of what the Buddha recommended is to is to bring into your consciousness your own goodness, not as a as a kind of false ego trip of saying I'm good, I'm wonderful. It's not that. It's it's recognizing in the through our own ability to reflect on on the goodness that, on the good the goodness that we have. Which is not easy because most of us, I think, have, are are more aware of our faults, and they they're always they tend to be exaggerated. A fault can just be taken out of a context and just obsess your mind, and uh, and uh, and the good things which which you you can just dismiss. You can say, oh, it doesn't matter. But look at this. So I think it's very important that we, we, we recollect, we bring into consciousness the goodness of our lives, the good things that we do, our intentions, the, the, what, you know, the, the generosity, the, the kindness, the love that we feel for things. The, 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 why are you here at this meditation retreat anyway? <laughs> because you're good, isn't it? Basically you want to know the truth. Because you, you aspire to spiritual realization. And this is this is a, none of you are here, I think, to, to you know, to cause any harm or to steal things from the retreat center or <laughs> to persecute each other or anything like that. We're all here out of out of. Uh, for some, out of the basic goodness we all share. We contemplate this in, in, and begin to admit, you know, just uh, the, uh, these, the virtuousness of your life. Not as a, not to convince yourself, but be, be honest. What is, you know, the way we, we, we don't like to see others harmed. We don't appreciate uh, Life when it's when it's when the, the brutality and the unfairness of it, and we love to hear about good things and virtuous people. The Dalai Lama now is a kind of international hero, because people are starved for for virtuous uh, leaders. We don't don't have them, <laughs> or we don't tend to see them as virtuous. We tend to be critical of them, and that we, 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 uh, we like to, to, we are quite, we, we want to tear them down, and kind of exaggerate their faults, and and uh, and even destroy them. It's amazing when, after uh, President Clinton was elected, 
the Americans proceeded to, in a most kind of nasty way, trying to destroy him. Couldn't do anything right. And of course, if you're President of the United States, everybody's looking at you all the time. Must be even hard to, you know, the only place you get any privacy is in the toilet. <laughs> then they have that probably bugged or something. <laughs> So, it's, it's, uh, and the, the Dalai Lama is a very, is worthy, isn't it? He's, a, he's obviously a very worthy human being, so, but we, we long to have Dalai Lamas, exemplary human beings, and we, I mean, when the Dalai Lama was here uh, this year, I mean, it was, uh, it was talks in the Wembley Conference Center were, extremely well attended. People weren't necessarily, you know, I'm sure most of the people weren't even Buddhist. They were just people loving the, the truth and virtuousness and goodness and somebody else, wanting to, to be near them, wanting to uh, witness them. Sometimes we take a, a very jaundiced and distorted view of humanity, just like the, the you know, the way we, we talk about human beings are just, you know, uh, you can, if you give them enough money, they'll do anything you want, kind of philosophy, or uh, you can buy anyone, you know, if you give them, you have money, or you can, everybody has their price, everybody, uh, is just selfish, and uh, and and uh, you know, thinking of themselves. So get what you can for yourself. Don't worry about the rest. These kind of cynical and negative philosophies about humanity, and we can see there are certain grounds to think that. It's not that that uh, that that is totally untrue, because we can be like that. We can be just self-centered, selfish. Uh, people that just trying to get what we can for ourselves. Admittedly, that is so, that is possible for us. But and and but that isn't the image we need to to uh, encourage in people's consciousness. We need to to recognize the potential of humanity, the goodness of it, the 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 opportunity human beings have for realization the miracle of our humanity, when we start contemplating it, our humanity in this way, then we begin to appreciate and value our lives and each other in a way we don't when we just look at each other in these cynical, in cynical terms. Or dwelling on what's wrong with everyone, what's wrong with oneself. Now, one, one skillful means that we have for dealing with <coughs> negativity is uh, metta practice. <laughs> and uh, metta is, for those of you who don't know what it means, it means loving-kindness. Uh, and it's, uh, it's an attitude of mind, really, that, that uh, one develops. And a metta especially is useful 
practice in, in a society where we tend to dwell on what's wrong with ourselves and the world. In, uh, for example, when I, when I first came to, to live in, in England in 1977, one you know, lived in, in London, and, and uh, one could feel it, that, uh, that, that one was living in a society that was very, that was quite negative and critical. Uh, having lived in Thailand for over a decade, uh, it's, it's a different, different feeling, different atmosphere. Uh, where uh, in the Thailand it, the people aren't so negative or critical. A lot more kind of faith in and uh, in in the Dhamma and, and and especially in the part of Thailand that I lived in the northeast. It was uh, there was a lot more kind of positive uh, feeling in the in the amongst the people themselves in general, generally speaking. Um, but in here in in Britain, in England, for example, it's the 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 people are tend to be they tend to to be critical by nature. We we tend to think and see uh, complain or see what's wrong with things. This tends to to dominate oftentimes our how we see things. We see what's wrong with something, and that's that includes ourselves. We tend to exaggerate. The weakness of the flaw. So metta is a very uh, useful means, skillful means, to deal with this problem of, of say, self-disparagement or uh, seeing the seeing what uh, emphasizing the faults or the things that are wrong with oneself or with others or with the society. Because metta is. Is uh, is non-aversion basically. It's metta is the ability to accept something for what it is, without uh, and not not creating aversion or hatred or or negativity. Not not following it with negativity. Uh, so that that metta doesn't mean. Liking something, or you know, loving something in a way that you, 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 you want it to be with you, or that you, you, it's not a kind of, it's not meant to be a, a synonym to to liking something. But uh, when we talk about love in this sense, it's more the, the underlying acceptance of things, and and not dwelling. In aversion, or not be not not following it with a lot of criticisms, so so metta at first say when we first start towards oneself, we are we're developing that sense of not dwelling on what's wrong with ourselves, not kind of saying this isn't right and I'm not good at this and, and going through the the whole list of our faults, but it's it's being more patient and accepting of our weaknesses or what's wrong with us without hating ourselves or criticizing ourselves for being this way. So one can look at metta in this way. Sometimes it's often taught in a, in a way that, that some people find it very difficult because it, it, uh, they say, may I be well, may I be happy. And, and uh, it sounds 
you know, to to a critical person, it's uh, it it sounds silly. Uh, it sounds like you know very superficial and not very sincere or realistic, and uh, so one feels a bit cynical towards it or a bit averse to just the may I be well, may I be happy type of of uh, metta practice. But that is, but then remember that the metta, that's just a, uh, that particular phrase, may I be well, may I be happy, may I be free from suffering, is is meant to be, is, it's not meant to be just a sentiment you're kind of uh, projecting onto yourself, but you you are developing an attitude of kindness and acceptance towards the the body you have and towards the negativity or the fears or the desires that you might have meaning that you're 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 not going to hate them or despise them or want to uh, complicate your your life by dwelling and by becoming obsessed with what's wrong so metta is like being able to accept in a kind and patient way what maybe you've never accepted or never allowed or always resisted or fought against or or uh, rebelled so i would apply this in when i when i first started doing metta practice in thailand i I started using this as a way of just dealing with with uh, with uh, the 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 tendency to be self-critical, and I'd learn. I just practiced uh, my metta of being just accepting uh, my own limitations and uh, weaknesses, not not justifying them or, or, you know, not 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 a justification of weakness, but it's it's not making a problem about things, not not creating a negative attitude towards yourself because of of weaknesses or faults that, that you do have. It doesn't mean you aren't aware of them or you're trying to say you don't have any. It's not that. It's not it's not false. You're not trying to delude yourself, fool yourself. But it is an attitude of patient acceptance, of kindness with what you don't like or don't want, especially. Now it's easy to have loving kindness towards what you like. Isn't that it's like you know the little puppies and kittens and uh, not hard to generate metta towards these or or pleasing people people that are pleasant and attractive and pleasing and and uh, polite and good manners and and uh, not disruptive it's not, it, well, it's not difficult to generate loving kindness towards those but <laughs> But where we we fail, isn't it, is in in the way we can be averse towards uh, that those beings that we don't like, or that are unlikable, or do things that are unlikable, or things, or that are mean-hearted, or that are unkind. So we we can become very, you know, you can see in in one's own life how you know you certain people you 
you just if you see somebody who you know is going to cause you trouble, you just want to get rid of them. You want to shut them out. You get away. I don't want any trouble. Or how we can become very, uh, uh, very cruel to people because we we think of if if they hurt our feelings or they offend us in any way or they they threaten us in any way, we can just want to kind of kick them out, throw them away, get out of here. Because they, 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 they bring up anger or fear in us. So, practicing metta, we we develop this attitude of patient kindness, acceptance of even the anger we're feeling, or the the fear, or the jealousy, or the resentments, or the bitterness that we're feeling. We we towards these mental states means that we're accepting them for what they are rather than than hating them and hating ourselves for having them. And the more we do this with ourselves, the more we begin to be able to relate to others in, a, in the same way. I think being a monk is a really fortunate thing to be because you, you're living in a community where you don't have all that much choice about who you're going to live with. You can't just say, I want only these monks and nuns that I like uh, here, and the rest can go. Anyone who's willing to become a monk or nun, you accept. You know, they're willing to keep the precepts. And it doesn't mean that you like them all. It means that if they're willing to live in this way, then, then you let them do that. And so you find yourself living in a community with people that you wouldn't live with if you had a choice. <laughs> Some of them. But this also is, I think, very helpful uh, in, in, in growing up because one learns how to open out more widely to, uh, to others, to idiosyncrasies, to eccentricities, to to personalities and people that one, if you, one would never have bothered with, or one would not have have given uh, any one's time to, if you if you were just following your your own uh, personal immature habits, you just <laughs> you, you know you'd had it when I was a layman, I had to I could kind of choose who I wanted to associate with, who I wanted to be with, and. And you had all ways of kind of avoiding all the rest. And had you know, you had you know, you could you could kind of control it to a certain degree. But as a monk in a Buddhist monastery, this is not the case. But it's good fortune that it's not the case because when you get beyond your own personal reactions, emotional reactions to individuals and to personalities, and you find many qualities uh, in people that you would have never noticed, and you, you begin to to even like people that before you didn't even you, you dislike, or you begin to understand the people that before you you didn't you didn't understand, because when you're living together, you have to you your this this meta practice is allows us to accept each other allows us to, keeps reminding us that, 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 uh, 
that we aren't the the God who's going to choose who's who's going to be enlightened and who isn't and who deserves to live in the monastery and who doesn't or who's a good monk and who isn't that uh, we we uh, we we watch this in ourselves our own kind of emotional tendencies towards liking and disliking uh, the monks, the nuns, the novices, the lay people that that uh, one uh, shares one's life with. No, the the metta towards oneself. It's uh, like ask yourself: Do you really love yourself? And uh, I'm sure some of you, if I asked you that question right now, you'd, you wouldn't know what to say. <laughs> I think it'd be embarrassing to say, yes, I do. And then, because <laughs> it sounds like, like, it sounds egotistical. But it's, this is what, what I call silent listening. When you... I developed a technique of listening to my to my mind. So when I would ask myself about if I loved myself, then then there'd be a certain kind of reaction to that. Kind of at first I'd say I'd, I'd use this this phrase uh, like what they do in California. I'd say I love you to myself, <laughs> and then uh, then. Uh, and then I didn't like that. <laughs> so I'd watch this, this, this reaction, uh, uh, this emotional reaction. It's a conditioned reaction of being averse to that, to saying that to myself. And and I have metta for that reaction. I would accept the reaction. I'd notice it, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, like or dislike. I wouldn't allow myself to make anything out of. I just accept the, the reaction. And I observe it, and then I could say this again: "I love you." And then, then the next reaction would come up. And after a while, it was like a cleansing. I began uh, to feel that I did love me, <laughs> but it wasn't in in a foolish way. It was a it was a sense of of that one is worthy of 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 respect and love. That uh, that one has self respect, in other words, or that when you get outside, when you get beyond just the, the kind of uh, conditioning of your mind, and the and the the perceptions you have of yourself, when when you've kind of let go of all that, then you find there's a natural kind of love there. That's that's innate to us. So it's it's part of our very being, but we. It tends to get dismissed or smothered or or overlaid with our negativity and our and our criticalness. Now then it's also interesting to 
say, with towards others, especially some people that bring up strong emotion, uh, emotions of of aversion. This this is really hard work uh, <laughs> because we do tend to uh, uh, people that did bring up strong aversion in our minds. We uh, it's a, oftentimes it's justified in a way. They, you know, there's certain grounds for this, and uh, and we can believe we can be quite kind of convinced of our own rightness about it all, and uh, we can um, almost there's a kind of conceit or pride, not wanting to to you know feeling that it's almost our duty to despise these people and that to to love them would be like betraying the truth because these people I mean when you've got a self-righteous streak in you 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 think these people should be punished because they've done bad things and and there's no way that that you should uh, let them forget it or let them off easily and uh, I think this is probably strong with men because we have this kind of this judgmental streak, at least some of us do, where we we can get very heavy-handed and very self-righteous. But observing this also with metta and just this the, one's own kind of of uh, righteous feelings and 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 uh, one's own feeling of of. Uh, the sense of one's self view as being something that's true and you you you're not going to let go of it you you with an attitude of metta you're more willing to to admit these things into consciousness to observe them you're more willing to let them uh, admit them so that you can can accept them and see them because they arise and they cease they're impermanent and this is a way of Cleansing the mind, more and more kind of releasing, freeing your mind from its conditioning and from its uh, kind of blockages, obstructions. So when we chant metta, uh, chant so that they remember that they're not they're not meant to be. Um, they sound maybe superficial or sentimental even or just nicey nice but they're actually but it's actually pointing to an attitude that we need that we need to develop so that like all of the buddhist teachings are are not just don't take them on the on just the superficial appearance of them because they they're they're quite profound and much you know, words do have their limitations you can only say so much and that's it, and and so don't don't get uh, don't give too much significance to the wording of of the teachings as what's it pointing to as a way of developing mindfulness and a skillful means to deal with the conditioning of your mind and the and how to relate and respond to the experiences of life, how to make metta work for you, not just. Try to. It's not like whitewashing, painting over something, and uh, and and just trying to to uh, 
be sweet and nice about everything it, when you're underneath you're seething with rage and bitterness and disappointment. It's not that. There was a woman uh, who went on a meta retreat a few years ago and, and uh, this meta retreat was was uh, the monk was doing this meta practice for 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 about ten days, and during this time, they, every night they had to spend, send metta to their to all these the different beings, and one of course was the mother. And uh, so, monk would say, "Now think of your mother, visualize your mother, and and send her loving kindness. <sighs> think of all she's done for you, and." And all that that uh, she's you know sacrificed for you and this this woman I guess had a pretty horrible mother and uh, <laughs> and so she was she'd just get angry you know she'd think uh, of of every time this came up she'd just freeze into uh, you know just with rage because uh, she felt she was supposed to spread loving kindness. But she didn't. But she, all she felt was rage, and when the perception of her mother came into her consciousness, well, then that began to worry her because she thought there's something wrong with me because I can't do this. You know, everybody else seems to be doing it, but me. And uh, so, this was a, a great worry to her because she felt somehow. Uh, despairing because she couldn't radiate loving-kindness to her mother. Now what, now, the, the, now the, if, say if you're, if you're trying to work through these difficulties, say, these kind of, if this had happened to you, what would you do? You know, can you just, you can just suppress your feelings and then spread this loving-kindness outward? Or, uh, you know, if, if you feel you've been, you're justified, or that that there is this 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 on a, this uh, unresolved anger and rage. So then, we can make a problem about how uh, we we've got all this unresolved anger and rage and must go to a psychiatrist or a psychoanalyst to deal with it, which might help. I don't know. But also, one can have metta for one's own rage so that you can admit it into your consciousness and and this is this is important when 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 rage and bitterness and resentments do arise in your consciousness uh, don't be frightened by it just recognize that that's probably a good thing just accept it and so uh, loving kindness or metta is a way of of accepting what you maybe you're frightened of or don't like or what you're, what, the, like the rage maybe you've always been holding down, or the, the bitterness that you've 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 repressed, and then when it comes up into consciousness, then you, it, you know you you've, you maybe you spend so much time resisting and rejecting it, ignoring it, that all you can do is feel frightened by it and hate yourself for having it. Or, you can have metaphor it, which is an attitude of accepting it for what it is. It's like this. 
and it's impermanent, it will cease. And, and you're, you're accepting it for what it is, for the way it feels. You're not saying it's, you didn't justify it or analyze it. Just, just be willing to feel it. Be willing to accept it as a conscious experience. Be willing to feel it and then you can let it go and then, it, then you're resolving. There's resolution there. There's a, that you're letting things go. You're, those, those old karmic tendencies, when they arise, then you can let them go. If you, if you have this. And so metta is, a, is, a, is an upaya or skillful means for an attitude of mind which helps you to, to deal with what you most dislike or are frightened of or, or uh, most resistant to. So it's like patience, acceptance, uh, willingness to let it be what it is. You, you, you have to remind yourself and you're willing to feel it. Because it was, when you, don't be frightened of feeling these things, these, these emotions. But feeling them doesn't mean indulging in them, it means admitting them. And, and willing to to let them be what they are and to to be a loud conscious recognition for what they are with this attitude of kind acceptance and patience with it non-aversion not not adding aversion to it but willing to accept the, the misery of it in the present or the ugliness of it in the present. And then it ceases. It's anicca. So you're seeing the Dhamma of it. This is how to resolve, skillfully resolve these, uh, these, uh, these uh, repressed, suppressed emotions. Or some of these fears that, that tend to uh, haunt us in our lives or, or uh, pursue us wherever we go until we learn how to resolve them. So this is, this I found, this way I, I, t I teach metta like this I, and because I found it very helpful to, to myself in dealing with these kind of problems in my own life. Uh, and, uh, and people that, you know, they do use it this way, uh, begin to, uh, you know, feel that they, they begin to have more confidence in, in uh, dealing with the, the pain or the anger or the rage or the discontentment or the bitterness uh, that might have been repressed or held down in one's life, in one's mind. Then the more you 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 free your mind from 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 those uh, tendencies, then it's much easier to do that in regards to external beings. As we reflect, as we contemplate, as we learn to 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 let go of our own uh, opinions and views of our own positions, uh, I think many of us learn to to soften up a bit, to be a bit kinder than we used to. 
I'd say I'm much kinder than I used to be. I'll put up with a lot more than I used to. I used to be much more hardline monk. And uh, over the years, I used, you know, used to, people used to be frightened of me because they, they'd see me because I could get quite, quite fierce and quite heavy. But contemplating that, contemplating that, you know, I, I've, I see that a lot of that came out of my own fear. And, you know, I could see that the hard line was oftentimes the only way I knew how to deal with the situation. So I'd, I'd get, I could get, you know, very uh, domineering or very uh, fixed and, and uh, very scolding. Because it was, uh, you know, when you really looked in, into what was happening, you saw you, you were exasperated or you, were threat, you felt threatened or you wanted to, uh, you, you felt hurt by what somebody did or you felt that you had to do this to, to set everyone straight. Uh, there was a strong sense of, of uh, self-righteousness there. And so as one keeps, keeps learning from life, you keep... You, keep, you know, you, you, we, most of us learn through our errors, don't we? We don't start doing things right. We usually start doing them all wrong, making a mess of it. <laughs> so you, so, but you keep learning from it, you know, if you keep observing what, what works and what doesn't. And so this, then this, uh, one more you see that you, you you can trust people that you can you don't have to dominate them you don't have to you, you know you people are uh, they aren't expecting you to be uh, kind of perfect and flawless and and uh, that that most amongst the nuns are quite uh, kind in themselves and they're quite willing to accept weaknesses and and faults in their senior monks and so forth. <laughs> so you begin to have a sense of, of, of being uh, at ease and trusting in the Sangha uh, where your life is, is very much uh, shared with our spiritual goal. And it becomes much more pleasant, much more uh, uh, wonderful way to live because of that, where the, uh, the other the other tendency to want to having very fixed ideas and high standards of what should be and trying to make everyone kind of fit into these high standards and trying to to enforce things and and control them was exhausting and all one wanted to do was get out of it i used to have a lot of problems of wanting to run away wanting to to run off to a cave I used to wish, you know, I'd read, when I first came to England, I, somebody gave me a book about these, that there are these kind of, uh, what do you call them, uh, UFOs. Uh, and there's beings in outer space who are watching us, and they, and they come sometimes and kidnap people. <laughs> 
And I remember thinking, I wish they'd come and kidnap me. <laughs> Get me out of here. <laughs> and I just disappear in the outer space. I mean, so... <laughs> because the, the, the learning was, there's still this need, there's still this sense of duty, of having been responsible, of having to live up to high standards, having to... Uh, all kind of noble things in themselves. But by carrying that burden uh, on yourself, it was, you know, you, you felt always this sense of being weighed down by what you thought people wanted of you and, the, and your own sense of responsibility and, and dutifulness. So the, the, the secret is how to live one's life and be responsible without feeling that you are. And how to be able to do these things without making any problems about them. How to, <laughs> how to live our lives without creating, without making them complicated. And this is what, you know, in, in what we're really moving towards in, in our own practice, what meditation does, or hopefully it will do for you, is being able to open you up and to, to help you to uh, deal with the complications of your karma, of your life, and the and the and the endless challenges that life brings us, because it's always you know you think you've just gotten over one crisis and one difficult thing, and then something else comes, and so you think, is there going to be any end to this? And then you think it's fine, whatever. It's just part of the practice. It's just the path, eightfold path. Crisis, no crisis. Success, failure, praise and blame, happiness and suffering. It's just, just keep going. Don't, 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 don't get overwhelmed by, or want it to be otherwise. Just learn from what you get, and and uh, and even welcome. Embrace what life itself, and are willing to experience it, willing to feel it, and willing to investigate it and learn from it. So this is, so the Buddhist teaching isn't a teaching to get you out of things and get away so you don't have to feel or 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 be hurt by anything it's not a it's not a a life for cowards or people who <laughs> who can't take it it's the buddhist teaching is a teaching that prepares you for all possible experiences all contingencies Admittedly, when in the early years, I I just wanted to get out, hide away in nice, quiet environments, because I I like tranquility and nature and and uh, I like being alone. I'm quite happy on my own. And so, and then there was also fear, and not wanting to get involved in complicated things, not having to be responsible for things. But life, somehow things happen and you find yourself being thrown into things. And, uh, and so 
so then I became, became aware that, that, that I shouldn't try to hold on to my ideas of what I wanted, I should learn to flow, and this is what's happened. Here I am. <laughs> but <laughs> but, the, but the, the benefits of it are that, that uh, one is able to, to grow up and to be able to uh, face life in a much more courageous way than if I'd just tried to stay off and protect my, my peace, tranquil life and refuse to, refuse to get involved with anything but just trying to control the environment. I know I, when I, if I was forced to come back to the, to the West after that I'd probably fall apart with despair. If you get, you get used to a certain type of environment and uh, that's, that, you know, say a, like a hermetic practice. I remember some of the monks used to say now uh, they couldn't practice in Bangkok. So you can't practice in Bangkok at all. Uh, so the only place you can practice is in the forest. So and that seemed right. We all preferred practicing in the forest. No, none of us wanted to go and practice in Bangkok. But sometimes we had to go to Bangkok, especially Western monks. We always had to visa problems or things we had to do in, in Bangkok. So, so then you'd hear some of the Western monks saying, Oh, I went to Bangkok and it just destroyed my practice. I was getting my practice together here in the forest and then I went to Bangkok and it's completely shattered, destroyed. Can't practice in Bangkok. And so I kept thinking about this. I think, you could, why, what is the place, did the Buddha say that Dhamma is dependent upon a place? Or is, is Buddha pointing to being free from dependencies on, on things? What is the Buddha, what his teachings about not, not being attached to things and not being, uh, you know, thinking that you have to have certain things in order to, to, to get enlightened. It's being free from all that, that kind of, uh, of uh, controlling and opinions and having opinions and views. So obviously, you, how do you practice in Bangkok then? Well, if you're expecting Bangkok to be like the forest, you, then you can't practice in it. But when you accept Bangkok for what it is, then the practice is just the same, isn't it? You're not idolizing, you're not saying, I can't practice here because it's not like 